man out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell Now batting for talk out of school Give me all I say yo Hello to the Tribe of Love, listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Bienvenidos a todos, bienvenidos mi familia. Welcome my family, WBAI listeners. My name is Daniel Alicea. My pronouns are he and his, and I am the proud son of Manny and Alma. And I welcome you today to another episode of Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you once more from WBAI listener-sponsored, locally controlled, non-commercial radio in New York City. We are found on 99.5 FM on your radio dial. This is a Pacifica radio station. And we are also being live-streamed on WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools and public education here in New York City, on the state level, and nationally. And if you would like to download a podcast of this episode later, you can find us on the WBAI archives or on Apple or Spotify. Today I'll have a conversation with national reporter and Spencer Education Journalism fellow Matt Barnum, who focuses on school funding debates. Matt reports for Chalkbeat. We will focus on his recent Vox story published this week entitled The Racist Idea That Changed American Education, How a Landmark Supreme Court Decision Was Shaped by the Racist Idea That Poor Children Can't Learn. I will also speak to Zara Nasser, director of the People's Plan NYC. We discuss their work with over 150 orgs and advocates fighting for dignity, care, and justice for all New Yorkers, and their fight against New York City's budget cuts to schools and other vital social services. We also have an important announcement from Parents to Improve School Transportation towards the end of our show. Let's dive in. I'm on the line with Matt Barnum. He is a rock star education reporter. He is a national reporter and Spencer Education Journalism Fellow focusing on school funding debates. He currently reports for Chalkbeat while presently on leave at Chalkbeat. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So you wrote a very comprehensive piece that was published on Vox this week entitled The Racist Idea That Changed American Education, How a Landmark uh, Supreme Court Decision Was Shaped by the racist idea that poor children can't learn. And so what got you interested in this story? And can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez case that reached the Supreme Court in 1973? Sure, yeah. So I became interested in this because I've long covered the debate about school funding and the question of whether more money buys better schools, better student outcomes. And I was interested in better understanding the history of that debate um, and trying to potentially write something more comprehensive about the debate and how it has changed over time. And if for people who are familiar with the debate at all, if as I was, or with the, the history of the debate at all, we know that it started with this report in 1965 called the Coleman Report. It was released by the federal government, and it essentially concluded that 
more money didn't really matter for, for student outcomes. Um, so I had, you know, a very basic understanding of that report. And my working understanding was, okay, you know, this was an old report. It was very influential. It didn't have particularly good data and methods. Um, so, but I, I didn't think it was going to be particularly interesting. It was just going to be, here's what this study found. It made people think money didn't matter for schools. Um, but I started researching it, researching more about the report. And I think one of the, the first, first things I did was I just went into the New York Times archives, which anyone with a subscription to the New York Times can do and looked that put the Coleman, the, the phrase Coleman report in quotes and looked at how it was being covered. And I started to see something that like sort of shocked me, perhaps naively. Um, but I, I saw this coverage and there, there was this article in particular that jumped out at me and it's a, mentioned at the very top of my box piece. It was something to the effect of the Coleman report suggested that, uh, and this was the language it used that a quote unquote slum child was unlikely to be able to learn how to read however much money was spent on his education. And I was shocked by that and disturbed by that. And from there, I was like, how did that, how, how did that come out? How was that, you know, interpreted in that way? Because that really, that wasn't like the, that actually wasn't what the Coleman report really found. And it wasn't what Coleman, James Coleman, who was a researcher really said, um, but somehow it had been interpreted as such. And so that sort of pulled me down the rabbit hole and I kept finding sort of evidence of what I describe as this fatalist idea, this idea that children of color in poverty can't learn or are unlikely to learn at high levels or, or that schools really can't make a difference at all. Um, and then I, the, the San Antonio independent school district B Rodriguez was a landmark Supreme court case um, that was decided in 1973 and ruled that there's no right to an education under the U S constitution. There's no right to equal school funding either. And this was a case brought by parents in San Antonio who said, our schools are dramatically underfunded because of property taxes. Um, and they ended up losing. And this has had this far reaching implication in, in American education. And I knew that part of that decision was this questioning of the link between money and outcomes. And, and those, the, the, the two stories sort of linked together in some interesting and disturbing ways. And so you mentioned the Coleman report. In your article, you share the work of several other uh, social scientists that influenced this case in one way or another, Coleman being one, Moynihan another, and the Jensen report. Can you tell us a little bit more about these reports and how you think they affected the outcome of this case? Right. So basically, so this is a little complicated because these three reports are different and they're some of them are that I, I don't want to completely lump them all together. Um, but it's also, but they did become lumped together. So the Coleman report was a study, as I mentioned, that showed no link between school funding and student outcomes, or even necessarily a link between school quality and, and student outcomes. And so, okay, that is an empirical question. That's a, that's a fair question. Like how much do schools and funding does, does, do schools and funding affect student outcomes? Um, and then there was also this report by Daniel Patrick Moynihan that doesn't seem at first related to school funding at all, but he um, wrote this report in 1965 that raised, that 
criticized the rise of single parenthood among black families. And he described that as the root of essentially black pathology, the pathology of the black family, he claimed. And I think there have been a lot of critics at the time and also now think that that was really wrapped up with race and racism, obviously. But Moynihan made this connection that, you know, the student at black, the, the, the black white test score gap was caused not by schools, but by families and that you really had to fix the home. You really couldn't do much about the school, about the schools. And he began promoting the Coleman report to, to make this case to basically say in so many words that schools didn't matter at all for, for student learning. And then in 1969, you had this flagrantly racist report by um, someone, a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, Arthur Jensen, who unfortunately had a great deal of credibility because he was very well credentialed. But he essentially argued that extra schooling programs, extra school funding programs, often referred to at the time as compensatory education, had failed because there were genetic gaps there was genetic deficiencies among low-income children of color. Again, let me reiterate that you know this is a this was a flagrantly racist claim, um, to the point that I'm you know even uncomfortable de- describing it. But it is important to to look at it clearly. Um, so by the early seventies, um, a lot of news organizations had sort of synthesized these reports to say look, there's just not much we can do to help certain kids. And we know who those certain kids are. Um, we can't just throw money at the problem. That's not going to work. Really, nothing we do is going to work to help these kids. Um, and we know that this reached uh, the president, Richard Nixon. Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote memos pr- promoting Jensen's reports to Nixon. They are on tapes describing that they agree with Jensen's characterization of about race and IQ and are specifically relating that to school policy. Um, Nixon would end up appointing four of the five justices who were in the majority in San Antonio, in the San Antonio versus Rodriguez decision. Now, I want to be clear, the, the decision itself did not explicitly make any sort of these fatalist, openly racist claims. Um, they also did not cite Arthur Jensen, but they did cite Coleman and some other work by Moynihan claiming to validate Coleman's findings. Um, and the my argument is that the idea that money didn't matter was at the time deeply intertwined with the notion that schools didn't matter and that low-income students of color couldn't learn or achieve at high levels. Um, and I marshal a lot of contemporaneous evidence that, that shows that. And so what would you say were the immediate and then far-reaching implications of this case, San Antonio versus Rodriguez, in American society in the last 50 years? Right. So on a very basic level, there's no right to an education in the U.S. Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court, and that doesn't seem likely to change any anytime soon, and there's no right to equal school funding either. So if you're a parent um, and you want to bring up – you think you're – child school is underfunded or unfairly funded or inequitably funded or just unequal in some other ways, you really don't have a case in federal court. In all likelihood, that's just going to get tossed out of court. And that happened. That continues to this day. There was a lawsuit recently in Detroit um, that was um, had this fleeting victory in federal court where the students sued for a right to read. They claimed the schools were not providing them even basic literacy skills. 
Um, eventually, that was that was thrown out of court on the basis of, well, let me let me be careful. Um, the eventually the the um, students settled out of court um, for a very modest amount, and they would would have very likely lost um, on appeal or to the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's a that's the implication today. After the Supreme after the Supreme Court ruling in 1973, that meant that states did not have to make these far reaching changes to make their school funding systems more equal. So Texas maintained a very unequal funding system for a decade or a decade and a half or two decades after the Rodriguez case. Um, I think actually almost precisely two decades. But um, the fight was not over for advocates of, of equal funding. They ended up filing suit in state court, filing many suits in many states' courts, um, and they often won. Um, and that's in part because state constitutions have much more explicit, clear protections for a right to an education. Um, and so we have seen, since the Rodriguez case, a slow but steady closing of the gap in funding between high, the schools of high-income students and the schools of low-income students um, to the point that that funding gap at a national level today is basically zero. So I think the Rodriguez case did have, you know, these the, these far-reaching implications in that it took a very long time to close the gap. Um, and maybe, you know, if there were more federal court involvement, we would see a more progressive distribution of funding where low-income students get more money, though that's, that's speculation. So it's had these sort of complex and, and, and far-reaching implications in, in different ways. Almost surreal because you hear folks say that uh, education is right, but here in the United States, it's it's not according to the Supreme Court. Right, at least not under the federal constitution. Now, you do have a, typically you have some right under state constitutions, though the degree to which that's enforced or what that means varies from state to state, but you're, you're exactly right. You You don't really have a meaningful right under the federal constitution. Interestingly enough, I think I read somewhere that Justice Brennan, who was in the dissent of this case, was one of the ones that suggested that uh, folks take uh, recourse or remedy in state courts. I think he wrote something for the Harvard uh, Law Journal, or it was published there, and said that they should uh, take it to state court. Yeah, and and, um, Thurgood Marshall, who was also wrote the most cited dissent in, in the case, um, had, had a footnote to, to that effect, which seemed like him telling lawyers, because he, of course, was a litigator himself. He litigated Brown v. Board of Education. So he, he was telling his former colleagues, OK, you've lost here, but go out and fight in, in state courts. And they did. And so in your article, there is a quote that I do want us to kind of un unpack a little bit. Yep. You write, in the decades that followed Rodriguez, many politicians and researchers continued to question whether more dollars brought more learning. But this contention became much less linked to racist and classist assumptions about which children could learn. Uh, you also linked to a study by Hanishek. Yep. Uh, instead of it focused on whether public schools were functional enough to use money effectively. And surely uh, there are some very complex nuances surrounding whether education is right, whether what some call throwing money at schools or even lowering class size improves student outcomes um, is still being debated among policymakers and researchers. Some might say that these distinctions, though, are, are not less racist or classist. Um, do you think that's an accurate distinction, especially looking at 
the work of Eric Hanishek, um, who has been for the last 40 years saying that money and even class size doesn't make a difference for schools that enroll large numbers of disadvantaged students. Um, despite some evidence to the contrary, you take the work of Alan Kruger, who debunked some of Hanishek's assertions and questions even the quality of his research. So do you believe it can be argued that folks like Hanishek and their assertions are inherently racist as well? I don't, my view is no, I, I don't believe that. Um, I do not believe it is inherently racist to argue or question as an empirical matter, the link between school funding and student outcomes. That is a legitimate public policy question. It's legitimate in all levels of government to ask, are we getting a return on our public spending? Um, and what's interesting about Eric Hanushek is he, in the late 60s and early 70s, was actually something of a critic of the, and, and he was, he's been in this debate for a long time. He was a critic of the Coleman Report and some of the other schools don't matter research, some of that fatalist research. He was arguing in the late 60s, he, he was a, a young PhD student at the time. He was arguing, no, no, the schools do matter. Teachers do matter. Um, he even held out the possibility at that time that money mattered too. But he rejected the fatalist idea that, that schools didn't matter. Now, he landed on a different perspective, and I think this is the perspective that we're most familiar with and that has better shaped, that has had more of an influence in public policy in the, in the last couple decades. His argument was schools do matter a lot, but money is not the key driver of what makes an effective school. Now, We've also had a recent line of literature from um, Caribou Jackson, an economist at Northwestern, and, and other researchers, which I cite in my piece, that really challenges Hanushek's work and suggests that, on average, money does matter. The more money you spend, on average, the, the better results you get. Um, and that is where it seems like the weight of the research is now. Um, I also, but but again, I, I don't think that disagreeing with that is inherent an inherently racist position. I will add one more thing, though, that I, I believe that the fatalist ideas that fatalist idea that schools don't matter and certain kids can't learn. I I believe that does affect education policy in ways that are very difficult to see because that is not something you can get away with saying in polite society, rightly so. Um, but I suspect that some people continue to hold that belief quietly, and we still see people in the public debate um, advocate for, for that view. Charles Murray is an example of that, who is someone who has continued to advocate for a version of, of that perspective. So I think that view has been marginalized um, rightly, but I don't think it has disappeared altogether. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's disappeared. I, I looked at some of the New York headline, uh, New York Post headlines recently that talk about um, funding to traditional public schools versus charter schools, and it's, it, it definitely kind of centers around some of these arguments. Yeah, I, I haven't seen those particular headlines. I mean, I, I do think the focus is is often on the quote-unquote dysfunction of the traditional public schools, which is a more arguable, which, which is not inherently racist, but I can see that 
I do worry that sometimes that can creep into racism of just focusing on the dysfunction of institutions in low-income communities of color can at times creep into racism. Um, and I, I think we have to look at that carefully um, and on a case-by-case basis. At the same time, I don't believe it's inherently racist to, to question um, the link between money and outcomes. I recently wrote a story, you know, several months ago that pointed out that New York State has the highest level of spending of any state in the country and its performance on the state um, or on the national assessment for educational progress are pretty mediocre considering how much it spend, the state spends. Um, and it's not entirely clear why, you know, it's very possible that money does matter, but it's just, um, it, it, the outcomes would be even worse if New York spent less. Um, but, but I do think it is important to, to look at this with a careful eye to, to ensure that our investments are paying off. I think some other factors might come into play, including class size. Sure, absolutely. And so to wrap up here, in your article, you mentioned interviewing Alex Rodriguez, who was in the sixth grade when his dad um, became part of this case, Demetrio. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about his story, what you learned about him, and how this case affected Alex personally? I think that's important so that we understand some of the implications of this case. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was very interesting to talk to Alex, and I was very thankful that that he made the time to chat with me. Now he's uh, 61 or, or 62 years old, I believe. Um, but he recalled vividly this case when he was an elementary school student. Student, I think it was sixth. He was in sixth grade when um, the case was decided, and maybe in first grade when when it was first filed. And you know, he he recalls his dad, Demetrio, just being really upset with the conditions of his school and of his, of his education. Um, he, he also recalls his dad was, you know, was working full time as a sheet metal worker. Um, and, but was also making had like a part-time job being an advocate for school funding and better schools, particularly for Mexican Americans in Texas. So he recalls his dad being busy on weekends and going out to, to events. Um, and so in, in 1973, when the case was decided, you know, this was a huge national case. Like a lot of people were expecting the decision to go to go the other way. And that would have required basically every state in the country to redo their school funding formula. And so it was a very closely watched case um, when it went against uh, the Rodriguez's. The media just descended up, upon um, their their small part of San Antonio. And Alex recalls just all tons of reporters in their family home, which, which he's, he lives in now, by the way. Um, and he, he has this vivid line of remembering seeing cameras that were bigger than a bazooka, as, as he recalls. Everyone was there. They were swarming his, his parents. They were interviewing his dad. And then they vanished, um, naturally, of course. Um, and then Alex had to go back to his school um, that had, you know, very large class sizes, very poorly paid teachers, didn't consistently have air conditioning in in the school district in um in texas um and actually in the years that followed the decision um the gaps so there were there were increases in funding for his district in in san antonio but the gaps between low-income districts in the area versus high-income districts actually grew 
you know, after they, they lost the case. Um, and so Alex re recalls that his schools didn't really change that much. Why would they? Um, and he graduated high school. Um, he didn't have any thoughts or any encouragement from teachers or school counselors, as he recalls, to, to go to college. Um, and he got some odd jobs. And then he, he eventually worked as a as a city bus driver in San Antonio for a few decades, I, th I think 30 years. Um, and, and he retired a year or a year and a half ago from that job. And as I talked to him, he doesn't, he, he loves his life or he's happy with his life. He doesn't look back at his life with regrets. He doesn't live with regrets, but he also does understand that he got shortchanged in his education. Um, and he realizes that, you know, his life may have been, different if he had gotten a better education. I've got to think that it affects generations after. And so yep. um, I think that's part of the story as well. Matt, yep. thank you so much for sharing this important story and really bringing to life um, some of the issues that are related to it. If someone wants to get connected to Matt Barnum on social media or any other place, um, how, how could they do that if they want to read more of your work? Um, so on, on Twitter, you can find me at, at Matt underscore Barnum and on Instagram. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't have an Instagram. Twitter's your, your best bet. Excellent. Thank you so much, Matt, for your time today. Uh, thank you for joining us at Talk Out of School. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed the conversation. You're listening to Talk Out of School on WBAI New York. I'm on the line with Zara Nasser. She is the director of the People's Plan NYC. She is part of a large coalition of over 150 advocates and organizations representing grassroots and policy reform. They are working on critical issues such as education, housing, the economy, health, and much more uh, across uh, New York City. Welcome, Zara, to Talk Out of School. Thanks, Daniel. Glad to be here. And so, Zara, can you tell our listeners in more detail about the work that People's Plan NYC is doing, its vision? some of its priorities. Yeah, sure. So People's Plan is a coalition of organizations fighting for justice and care and dignity for all New Yorkers. And we started in 2021. Um, actually, 2020 uh, was, was when we started during the pandemic. And we spent that year creating a platform for the next 10 years of the city, 2021, which was a mayoral election year and a council election year, city elections. We put out a series of platforms and a lot of them were oriented around, right? Like how do we become a city that is actually providing care and, and justice and dignity for its citizens um, instead of you know, abandonment, criminalization, um, harm. There's there's a lot of folks on our website, People's Plan NYC, who contributed to that platform. And after 2021, we moved into actually trying to figure out how to implement many of the priorities that um, organizations and organizers had had submitted to us in in the previous year, um, and figure out how to actually make those things happen. And with the election of Mayor Eric Adams, I think there was a lot of concern and a lot of just reorientation around 
what was going to be possible in in this kind of uh, mayoralty where the mayor backed by millionaires, billionaires, uh, the real estate lobby, big business, and in general, espousing really regressive and uh, conservative and austerity-oriented uh, policy and, and budget orientations that we would have a really tough fight ahead of us. Um, and, and a lot of the the things that we were trying to accomplish through our platform and, and the people's plan, as it were. And we, in 2022, really focused on the budget as, you know, the main kind of avenue of, of trying to, to uh, push for care for New Yorkers instead of cuts. Um, as you know, and as many folks know, there was pretty monumental cuts to the, to the Department of Education budget last year, DOE, um, and schools felt that impact uh, directly. Um, and in June, we really shifted to try to restore many of those cuts. We were ultimately not successful, but we spent, I think, like three months bird dogging Eric Adams and, you know, sending parents and students and um, uh, educators his way and, and really like, you know, making him answer New Yorkers on why he he gutted public schools. You know, as as we came into the fall of of last year, 2022, um, he announced further cuts. So he's really on this mission to to cut uh, a lot of the lifelines and the public institutions that New Yorkers need and hold near and dear. In this upcoming budget, um, which is FY24, fiscal year 24, um, he's cutting libraries, he's cutting schools, he's cutting um, 3K early education programs, he's cutting CUNY, social services, housing services, mental health services are at stake. Um, he's cutting city uh, positions that he has purposely held vacant uh, across the board um, by by half, I believe. So there's a lot at stake and um, people's plan and the coalition that that um, we represent of organizations on the ground like AQE, like New Yorkers for Racially Just Public Schools, um, Make the Road, Vocal, Drum, a lot of these grassroots organizations that have been doing work um, in communities for, for decades, uh, you know, we are essentially trying to be the be the defense, you know, for New Yorkers, for communities of color who are going to be directly impacted by these by these cuts. So um, we're going to be fighting for uh, restoration of those cuts and to defend the, the city budget for more of these cuts in this upcoming budget cycle, which is happening now. And um, yeah, just really excited to to, you know, let your listeners also know that they're welcome to be a part of this fight. And so you've mentioned some of the organizations, especially surrounding education. In addition to any budget cuts, what are some of the issues that you know of that some of these organizations are fighting for us surrounding public education? Yeah, so um, our platform, which folks can check out at um, peoplesplan.nyc, um, you know, there's a lot uh, that we we took from organizations um, working around education, um, you know, uh, AQE, um, Girls for Gender Equity, uh, Youth Power Coalition, um, 
Make the Road, Dignity for Schools, Urban Youth Collaborative, um, New Yorkers for Racially Just Public Schools, um, you know, all of these organizations that work on education um, on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of the um, the demands around, you know, fully funding schools, um, decriminalizing schools, removing police from schools, supporting students and their and their health and their mental health, um, you know, really investing in culturally responsive education um, and uh, keeping schools public and really defending schools against privatization and charterization. Um, you know, the funding piece has obviously been the piece that we've really been focused on, but uh, a lot of these initiatives obviously rely on on funding um, to the DOE. And then once it gets there for it to be directed in, in ways that feel um, transformative and humane for students, faculty, um, and parents. And so, um, yeah, integrating schools, um, you know, really thinking about like from 3K to graduation to post K through 12 and and like a, a sustainable free CUNY system. Um, all of these pieces are are things that our partners have been working on for, for a long time. And they're frankly, a lot of the, the wins that we've already had um, under, under previous um, administrations and um, in, in like the last 10 years are also under threat, right? Like universal early child, uh, childhood, 3Ks on the chopping block. Um, and that was something that um, organizers had fought for years to get under the de Blasio administration. Um, integration is being deprioritized. Um, testing, you know, uh, testing is being brought back into schools, which we know exacerbates uh, segregation. Um, funding, obviously, is being, you know, funding is a big issue that is is uh, at stake right now. Um, and then just in general, like school school safety and what it means to keep kids safe, like that's headed back in the direction of stop and frisk, um, heavy police presence in schools, um, suspensions, punitive uh, orientations around um, uh, discipline. So those are all the things that our partners have been working on. And they're also things that are deeply at stake now um, with this new administration. So I beg to differ. You, you said, I guess, ultimately, th- there wasn't a reversal on some of the budget cuts. Although I, I think of, of two of two instances, I, I think later in the fall, the mayor did uh, infuse some more monies. Um, and I, I have to think that it is part of the pressure from all of the organizations working within the People's Plan NYC. And then I also think of how they've um, reconstituted or relooked at the the formula for fair student funding, and so I have to think that it's been the work of all these partners together in the People's Plan that brought about uh, at least some wins, ultimately uh, around the budget. Yeah, I think it's hard because you know we we're in this position where. You know, a lot of the folks who have been doing organizing um, around education just see what the huge gap is between current funding levels and like what what it needs to be for us to actually have schools that are um, supportive and and like, you know, um, 
are, are actually like oriented towards care and learning for students. But you are right that we um, in in this in this like kind of bleak <laughs> uh, atmosphere that we're in, um, I, I know that we prevented an additional 80 million from being cuts uh, from being cut from schools in um, this upcoming budget cycle, which is obviously a big deal. There was some money that was brought back to schools after um, I think October or November um, in the fall. Uh, the thing that's just hard is that like you know. It's um, the the schools that were cut because they were not given that money back by September. A lot of the the positions that were were cut, or um, the art teachers, or the music teachers, or the school um, you know counselors, uh, social workers that weren't able to come back because of of the budget cuts that remained in effect. And so um, that's what's really hard is like, you know, we, we we wanted that money to be restored by September and the mayor kind of waited around and, and did it a little bit later. Um, but I think this time around, we want to make sure that funding levels are not um, at that cut uh, rate that, that we ended up with in FY23. We want to make sure that they're funded um, with the restoration of the cuts and with no no further cuts to, to schools. And that's something that um, the coalition is actively working on now. And when we launch on March 7th, the, the pressure will be up to make sure that that's what we're defending against. And there's no doubt that, as you said, how these staffing cuts affect school communities and school culture. And so tell our listeners, Zara, I know you've been pivotal in organizing some of these protests and bird dogging. Tell our listeners what bird dogging is. I know I participated in one um, tell us what it is. Is it effective? I know critics will say it's disrespectful, um, but tell us what it is and, and how it's been able to uh, create a, a conversation here in the city. Yeah, I mean, um, so just like really quickly, like bird dogging means that, you know, you are trying to find um, a a politician or someone in power who. Um, has, you know, has either taken a position on an issue um, that is harmful to uh, your community or has like done some sort of policy decision or budget decision that again is like harmful to to communities and you're basically putting them on the spot. You're, you're finding them in person. Um, you're putting them on the spot. You're asking them the question of uh, why did they take a position on XYZ? that harms, you know, these communities, or why did you make a policy or budget decision that harms XYZ communities? And um, in our case, we spent a lot of, with Make the Road, with AQE, with um, now with uh, New York Communities for Change. Um, I know there was a lot of other folks in, in the mix, but um, last year we spent um, almost every other day, I would say, between um, June to September, um, bird-dogging the mayor, finding him at his public press events, um, asking him why he cut schools and, and why he wouldn't just restore the money back when the money was there. There was federal money that could have easily been used um, and was for the purpose of, of um, supplementing school funding. And he just like refused to use that money to fund schools. Um, so every other day, like parents would, parents, students, uh, school social workers, um, 
educators, former educators, um, you know, grandmothers, people would, uh, you know, we would, we would identify the event that he was going to be at and we would, you know, help folks get there and, and ask this question of why is he doing this to New York City kids? Um, and he often, you know, would ignore the parents or the, or the, uh, students, grandmothers, whoever, or that we would get kicked out or, um, he would, you know, try to kind of slyly, uh, sideline the issue or, or say, oh, it's always the same person. It really wasn't. We had hundreds of parents, um, and educators and grandmothers and just people who are associated with school communities, um, you know, throw down with us on this. So 100%, it was, it was a plethora of, of folks who were really enraged about the cuts and just not understanding why he would just not restore the money. And, or he would say, you know, oh, the DOE budget, it's so big. This is just a little part of that budget. Uh, um, you know, pray with me. He would do just a myriad of different things to try to divert attention from the issue at hand. Um, and the truth is just that, like, schools were impacted, you know, regardless of how how much the DOE budget is, it, it cut enough where it impacted schools. So that's a concern. He kept um, kind of, you know, using his faith and using prayer to, like, divert from his own power that he has over school budgets. And a lot of us are also religious or, like, associated with faith-based communities, and we found that outrageous. And in fact, one of my favorite bird dogging sessions was Kim, one of, um, uh, she's a grandmother and, and like a, was an active part of our campaign. She, uh, you know, she held his, his hands with him and he was, and she was like, pray with me. And he didn't know who she was or like why she was doing it. And he like was totally into it. And then she was like $469 million, $469 million. And then he realized that that was the number that he had cut from schools. And he immediately let go and like, you know, tried to get away from her. So it's just, we had like a lot of folks who were, who were deeply involved. And I guess like, you know, this happened yesterday actually at an event that um, the mayor was at. There was um, uh, a parent, um, there who asked him kind of the same question, uh, you know, why are you cutting schools? Why are you cutting libraries? Why are you cutting early education in CUNY? And he, you know, his people uh, made everyone leave and like silenced people as soon as they could. But um, the whole thing is that people are like, oh, well, this is disrespectful. You're interrupting an event or you're, you know, I mean, the couple of things that are really important is we never interrupt anything that, um, you know, is really like it's a celebration of of things that our community is fighting for and, and winning, right? So there was a couple press conferences or other things where we always waited until after, we always waited until, you know, he was coming to and from events. And it's disrespectful to defund public schools. So uh, this is the only way that we can actually impact someone who's in power. He, on a dime, can decide tomorrow, oh, I don't, I want to fund schools fully, and so since he has the power, he needs to answer to New Yorkers about why he's he's gutting schools. Um, so we don't think it's disrespectful at all. We think it's disrespectful for him to, to cut schools. And so this is the way to, to put him on the spot. Yeah. And with mayoral control, he has unilateral control of schools. And so absolutely, he's he's got the power to do this. I, I too, took exception to him using what seemed to be his favorite response, pray for me. 
or God is on my side. Um, another response he's using lately is that, uh, that those that are involved just got woke. He's been woke for the last, uh, 35 years. And some of it I find very disrespectful. Um, in addition to the Sheen Center, um, recently there was a Valentine's uh, Day surprise for the mayor. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was um, totally our, our partners, um, NYCC, New York Communities for Change. Folks should check them out at NY um, Change on Twitter. Um, they are great. <laughs> um, they are going to be supporting holding down bird dogging this time around, um, just so that we can, you know, we can all have important roles that we play in the in the campaign. But um, uh, basically, there is a, you know, there's a couple different places that um, Eric loves to hang out, and um, he hits these like same restaurants or same clubs or whatever. Um, each, you know, a lot. And there's a, there's an Italian restaurant. I'm going to forget the exact name. I think it's Osteria La Bella, I think is how you say it. And, um, our friends at NYCC, um, and, uh, one of the organizers, James there, uh, organized that event with AQV and with Matt Council on housing. And, um, you know, they brought Valentine's and uh, tried to find Eric inside the restaurant. He wasn't there. And, you know, they they wanted to deliver these Valentine's that that basically were were saying uh, no cuts, um, kisses instead or something like that. And they were handing out uh, Hershey's kisses. So that was a that was a really clever um, and fun event that they did. I know that there's an upcoming rally on March 7th. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? I know there's a lot of work that goes into analyzing the depth of these budget cuts. Is there a clear number on, especially for education dollars? I know there's, there's other cuts that, that are being examined and analyzed and protested. Um, but is there any idea as to a dollar amount when it comes to education cuts? And tell us about the uh, rally. Yeah, so just about the education cuts, I think what's hard is um, we don't have a clear, clear dollar amount. We anticipate that it could be um, a couple hundred million dollars, but it's not clear to us yet, just because what's tricky is that, and anyone who is um, part of your you know, community education council or PEP, if you're listening, if you can make sure to um, you know, try to ask these questions about, you know, um, what are the school allocation numbers? Uh, what are, what are principals thinking that the impact of, of this year's budget FY24 will be on schools? We need to figure that out, um, soon, just so that what happened last year doesn't happen again, which is that, you know, it was, it was June when we figured out that there would be cuts to schools. We just don't want that to happen again, because, um, the more time that we have to to push against it, the less likely it is to go through. But um, so, yeah, so I think in terms of exact number on school cuts, that's something that, you know, um, uh, Laney from Class Size Matters and AQE and RJPS are, are we're relying on them to, to get us the numbers that we need for that. But um, we do think that there will be cuts, especially with the, with the, car, the charter school um, expansion that's being touted at the state level. Um, and in general, because, um, there is, uh, you know, cuts that, that are kind of, uh, overlying from last year that we're just trying to understand how they continue to impact schools. 
Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, March 7th. So March 7th is at 11 a.m. That's a Tuesday. Um, we'll be gathering at Tweed and we are basically going to be launching the People's Budget Campaign. So what that is, is um, basically us uh, form coming in formation, announcing, you know, that that these are the priorities of um, of New Yorkers and organizations that represent those New Yorkers. Um, so that means no cuts to schools, no cuts to CUNY no cuts to social services and um, housing services, no cuts to, to 3K and, and um, continue to expand that early education program. Um, you know, so yeah, like libraries, CUNY, 3K, schools, housing, um, and, and social services are going to be key for us. And I think that um, we will especially be trying to both put pressure on the council and the mayor to make sure that they understand that this is the, this is the floor of their negotiations. They cannot um, expect to put forward a budget that uh, has cuts to, to those things. And we'll be using March 7th to launch, but really that's just the beginning. Um, again, our partners will be out there every week. We're dogging the mayor. We'll be doing phone banking um, in uh, to, to constituents and voters in specific districts. We will be um, canvassing in, in libraries and schools uh, and CUNY will be, um, you know, at uh, different city council hearings and meetings, making sure that the council members know what's going on. We'll be visiting Eric's uh, favorite clubs and restaurants and uh, homes to make sure that he knows what the, what the budget floor um of negotiations is so we just want to make it clear that this is the kickoff right of like a, a pretty hopefully intense campaign that is going to make it clear what's at stake and how um we as new yorkers cannot afford any more cuts to to public schools and public institutions that we rely on this is such important vital work and i want to thank thank you zara for for the work that you're endeavoring in and all the organizations that are part of the People's Plan NYC. And so if someone wants to get involved with the People's Plan NYC, someone wants to get involved uh, in the rally, the upcoming rally, what where can they go to get more information about the People's Plan? Yeah, so um, folks should sign up for emails at our website, peoplesplan.nyc. Um, on Twitter, Instagram, we are People's Plan NYC, so at People's Plan NYC. Um, you can follow us there. There's, you know, links to all the events that are coming up. Um, and then if you want to join us on the 7th, um, you can go to tinyurl.com slash launch. Um, and that will take you to our RSVP. But if you want to consistently stay involved, I would say definitely sign up on the website because we um, email all the events that we um, have going on. And, and you know, if you if you want to figure out, like, you help organize parents or students or um, educators and you want to figure out how to bring um, your uh, organization or organizing crew more deeply into this, you can also email us at info at peoplesplan.nyc and um, we'll, we'll figure out how to uh, get you connected. I'm really hoping that, you know, if you're part of a library group or or a parent group or a student group or an educator organization, 
Um, we would love to come talk to you about the budget. Um, we're going to be doing like a budget roadshow. So if you want us to come and speak to just like what specific things are going on in the budget and how we all need to unite against um, this austerity budget and, and the cuts that are coming, uh, we would love to do it because we want to make sure that everybody has the same information, is contacting their elected officials, um, is emailing and phone banking and and doing all the things so that we can make sure that they understand that there, there's a lot of public fallout coming if if they allow for more cuts to come through. So thank you again, Zara. Much power, much respect. Thank you for joining us on Talk Out of School. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you. Do you have family members or students who suffer from school bus route problems? Parents to Improve School Transportation will host a virtual Know Your Rights workshop this Tuesday, February 28th at 7 p.m. We'll go over changes in the DOE website forms and links, where to find advice you can use and share, and an update on our School Bus Bill of Rights campaign. Please take down the following email address to register for the meeting information. It's P-I-S-T-N-Y-C at gmail.com. Again, that's this Tuesday, 7 p.m. online, and you contact P-I-S-T-N-Y-C at gmail.com for details. Join the movement for better busing. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Thank you to our guests, Matt and Zara. Please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. That number again is 212-209-2950. We need the support of people like you to keep on going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations here in New York City that doesn't run ads. There is no show on the air like Talk Out of School that really delves into the issues and controversies affecting public schools and public education like Talk Out of School. And so if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate. You can also donate online at WBAI.org. And did you know that you can become a WBAI buddy? What's that? It means that you become a monthly sustaining member in name of Talk Out of School, or in the name of all WBAI programs. As a listener who signs up to make up a recurring monthly donation at WBAI, you can do so by either using your credit or debit card or your bank account. It's safe, it's secure, it's simple and automatic. You just need to fill out and submit the form online at the WBAI website. The website is WBAI.org. If for any reason you prefer to sign up through a live person, you can call the number again, 212-209-2950, and say that you want to become a WBAI buddy. We'll be glad to set you up. Thank you so much. Your support goes a long way to keeping WBAI on the air. As your community radio station, broadcasting here on 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. Until next time, Tribe of Love, remember that love always wins.
talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation 